And now, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to the book of Joshua. We have been going through in the evenings the book of Joshua, dealing with the conquest of the promised land by Joshua and the Israelites. We'll be looking this evening at chapter 5. And chapter 5 is the beginning of the next section in this book. The preliminary matters are beyond us, and we are about to now begin to, to undertake and to read the section that deals with the conquest of the land itself. And so if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is completely inerrant. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Joshua chapter 5. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west... And all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over. Their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gebeath Haroloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that He would not let them see the land that the Lord had had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children, whom he raised up in their place, that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month, in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land unleavened cakes, and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, 
A man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it this evening. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we... We ask this evening that you would take this word, this word that you have inspired by your spirit, and that you would make it clear to us that we would learn better who you are, that we would have a clearer picture of how we are to serve you. Lord, we thank you for communicating to us by your word. It is indeed a great blessing to us. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, as I said earlier, this is the beginning of chapter 5, but that means that it's the beginning of a next section or chapter in the book of Joshua. This section will cover chapters 5 through 12, and it is about the taking of the land. And so we move into a new phase in this story. And particularly in this chapter, there is a renewal of the covenant of Israel with God. And I think we're going to see four different ways in which we can understand what it means to belong to the Lord. First, we'll see that what it means to belong to the Lord is to believe in Him. That to belong to the Lord requires us to believe in Him. Secondly, to belong to the Lord means that we have His promise. It means to have His promise. Thirdly, it means that we receive the provision of God. To receive His provision. And then lastly, it means to know that He is the Lord. All of these are different aspects of what it means to belong to the Lord. Let's begin then by looking at the first few verses of chapter 5, that what it means is to believe in Him. So Joshua is in the promised land with the Israelites. You'll recall that the last time we were in this book together, the mighty River Jordan, with its rapids and torrents, had dried up before the Israelites. And they were, over, they were able to cross over on dry land. Now you have to have the correct picture in your mind of what this looked like. Especially as our chapter opens, as soon as the kings of the Amorites and Canaanites heard what the Lord had done, their hearts inside them melted. Because I think sometimes we picture the things that are going on with Joshua the way that we saw them on a flannel graph when we were young. 
or perhaps as a story in Sunday school. This is not 20 or 30 Israelites coming over into the promised land. The Israelites are 2 million strong. And you can just imagine if you were a Canaanite king and you looked out over this massive army as it was on the banks of the river. And you would say to yourself and to your advisors, well, at least we've got the Jordan. Look at that water roll. They'll never get across it. And if they're foolish enough to try to, we'll counterattack them and drive them into the river. If you've ever read any accounts of any ancient battles in Thucydides or Caesar or any Greek or Roman historian, you know that that is prototypical for an ancient battle. There's a huge invading horde of people from outside the empire. And they cross the river because... The armies that are defending always find a natural barrier. And then there's usually a battle in which the invading army is stuck between their opponents and the river, and more of them die in the river than in battle. So you can imagine the Canaanites and the Amorites were being very confident. Then all of a sudden, the mighty river Jordan stops. You've never seen anything like this in your life. And then you just watch as the Israelites pour across the river into your land. And you don't know what you're more frightened of, this massive army, or what could have possibly caused the river to stop. It seems to be on this massive army's side. You can just imagine. What will we do? We should give up now. Now, if this were a film, or a dramatic novel. The very next thing that we would see is the Israelites storming the gates of these cities because this is obviously the best time to attack. The enemy hasn't gathered up their forces. They thought they had plenty of time. They probably have not manned the ramparts yet. What the Israelites should do is quickly rush the enemy. But the interesting thing is, is that Israel instead pauses. Look at verse 2. At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. And so Joshua does this. Now, humanly speaking, this is perhaps the strangest thing that any army could do. To lose the element of surprise. To lose the attack and then to intentionally incapacitate your soldiers. Now, you don't have to have experienced circumcision as an adult male to just think about how painful and incapacitating that would be. And we know from the story in Genesis 34 that when the sons of Jacob tricked the Shechemites into circumcising themselves, they were unable to do anything For several days, as a matter of fact, the sons of Israel, two of them, went through the whole town and slaughtered all of the enemy warriors. They were unable to get up, unable to wield the sword, unable to fight. And now God is telling Israel to intentionally incapacitate themselves in this way. It's the very opposite of worldly wisdom. But the truth is, this entire campaign is not about worldly wisdom. 
It's about obeying God after 40 years of disobedience. And the Lord is reminding them to believe in Him. He is reminding them that their relationship with Him is first and foremost. This relationship is the critical import in Israel's life. And so what we see here is is actually quite ironic. The previous generation, Joshua tells us in verse 4, had been circumcised, all of those who had come out of Egypt. They had been circumcised, but they did not listen to God. You see this in verse 6? For 40 years they wandered because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. So they had the mark of the people of God, but they didn't have the response of the people of God. They looked like believers, but their lives were marked by unbelief. Now this is not limited to ancient Israelite warriors. The Apostle Paul reminds us of exactly this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He reminds us that it is possible for us to have the marks of the people of God, to sit in the pew at church, to have baptism, to memorize Bible verses, and yet not to believe in God. He puts it this way in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. I want you to know, brothers that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Now we would expect Paul to say how blessed they were and what a wonderful people they were. But here verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. You see, there is a reminder here that it is not enough to look the part of the people of God, but that we must Believe in the Lord. We must know that we belong to Him because we trust in Him and we believe in the Lord. And so what we have then here is a people now of Israel who are under the Lord but don't have the mark to show it. They are following the Lord. They are obedient into the promised land. The previous generation that were circumcised but were unbelieving, have passed away, and now we have an obedient, believing generation that is not marked by the sign of the covenant. And so the Lord orders them to take an action that will prompt a response from them. Because you need, sometimes we need to remember that belonging to the Lord means believing in Him. The next thing that we see is the Israelites are the ones who have His promise. To belong to the Lord means to have His promise. We see this beginning in verse 6. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness. 
They walked until that entire generation had passed away. And there's something very interesting in verse 6. Do you see it? The Lord is swearing, and He swears twice. The Lord swore to them that they would, that He would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers. Now these two oaths that God takes seem contradictory, don't they? You won't see the land that I've promised. He swears they won't see it, even though He has sworn to give it to Israel. So the question that comes to our mind is, has God changed His mind? Can the actions of a rebellious generation negate the promise of God? Well, the answer we get from the text is clearly no. Because God had sworn to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob that He would give them this land to them and their descendants. The promise will be fulfilled. We're actually going to see it being fulfilled in the book of Joshua. It's important for us to remember that God always keeps His promises. Even if there's a time of waiting, even if man disobeys, Because God's promise is founded on His word, not on our response. But it's also important for us to understand that we can forfeit our share in the promise by our own unbelief. You see, the fact that God keeps His promise doesn't mean that He ignores our unbelief. The promise was there for the previous generation. But they refused to take hold of it because of their unbelief. Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. (coughs) For the good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. (coughs) You see, that generation did not seize the promise. They did not receive it because they did not believe in the promise. God had promised to give them this land, and they looked at the land and looked at the promise and said, there is no way God can fulfill this. We're afraid. God must be lying. He must not have thought this through. We're not going into that land. He can't do what he said he could do. And through their unbelief, they were unable to enjoy the blessing of the promise. God is about to bring his promise about, but that generation won't enjoy it. Now this is a lesson for us. We should not view God as some kind of small God who can be frustrated by us and our actions. As if something we do derails the plan and purpose of God. We cannot stop His plan and His purpose. Ultimately, our sin is powerless against God. Now this has immediate practical implication for us today 
in 2016? Are you disturbed by the unbelief that is throughout the church in the world? About how the scriptures are held in low esteem? About how the gospel has been corrupted? About how the mission works seek less to speak of Jesus and more of social issues and worldliness? You may be tempted to think that the promise of God That his name would be from sea to sea. That Jesus would reign over all the earth. Would somehow be thwarted by the rebellion we see in the world. After all, there are so many people that are rebelling against God. So many people that have hatred against God. So many people that claim to serve him that do not believe in him. But Joshua tells us that God always keeps his promise. Now it may be that in those churches and in those places and in those mission fields, they will not enjoy the fruit of the promise of God. But they can't stop it. God's promises are always true. The third thing that we see in chapter 5 about what it means to belong to the Lord is to receive His provision. And we see this in verses 10 through 12. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month, in the evening on the plains of Jericho. So they have renewed the covenant. And Joshua tells us that the reproach of Egypt had been rolled away from them. That's why this place is called Gilgal. Now, Most of us don't know or understand Hebrew. But if I can take a little bit of liberty, it's as if they chose to name this place Rolling Rock. Because the reproach of Egypt had been rolled away from them. They actually name it to remind them of what God has brought to them in His provision. They could finally leave Egypt Behind, You could just imagine what life must have been like to live in Egypt. All of the taunting and ridicule that they would have received in Egypt. You may receive some taunts or some snide remarks at work or at school about your faith. But could you imagine if you were a slave in a multi-generational people of slaves... You could just imagine the Egyptians taunting them. Some kind of God you've got. Is he the God of making bricks? Is he the God of whippings? If so, let me know and I'll give you some more whips. Your God doesn't exist. He can't do anything for you. You're our slaves and you'll always be our slaves and you'll never be anything better than slaves. You could just imagine what that must have been like to live under. As parents, to see your children abused. To have the hopelessness of slavery thrust upon you. But you see, now that has all been rolled away. Because God has provided. God has rolled that reproach away. And they mark this time now with the celebration of the Passover. And it's interesting that right there out in the plains, right before the walls of Jericho, they stop and celebrate 
the Passover. And this is like a bookend, as it were. That right before they left Egypt, they celebrated the Passover. And now, as they are experiencing the deliverance that God has brought, they once again celebrate the Passover to remind themselves that God provides. That was the beginning of their redemption. And now we're about to see the completion of their redemption. And the Lord is reminding them of His incredible saving work. There is no more powerful image in all of the Old Testament of God's saving work beyond the Passover. Think about what the Passover means. It means victory. It means freedom. It means hope. God's people are wise to think back on the remarkable providences that he brings to his people. Just dwelling upon that and understanding the great work of God, how in one moment, in one night, he subdued an empire and set them free. Things like this don't happen all the time, do they? But then there's something interesting that happens following. And the day after the Passover... On that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes, and parched grain. And the manna ceased. You see, what happens is they begin to eat of the fruit of the land. This is as ordinary as it gets. In our common parlance, we would say, they went to the grocery store and they bought some food. And they started to eat. Now, This was something they had been promised long ago that they would eat of the land, but they hadn't obtained it. The author wants us to see this. In verses 11 and 12, three times he repeats this phrase, they ate of the fruit of the land. And what happens is, in the ordinary, the extraordinary ceases. You see, they eat of the fruit of the land, but the manna stops. The manna is a visual representation and appearance of the miraculous power of God. You go outside and there's food. And you eat it, as much of it as you can. And the next day, guess what? There's more food. And you don't have to worry about tomorrow because there'll be more food. And you don't have to plant or water or gather. All you need to do is receive the benefit of the Lord. Now, we might think that this signals a loss for the people of Israel. They have to give up miraculous manna for ordinary food. But the manna was an exceptional provision for an exceptional need. Now they no longer need the manna. Why? Because God is still providing. You see, the food they have is still God's provision. We must not look past the humble things in our life, the ordinary ways in which God provides for us. Dale Ralph Davis puts it this way wonderfully. He says, Most of God's gifts are not dazzling and gaudy but are wrapped in simple brown paper. 
Now, we don't judge the value of the gift by the wrapping, do we? Have you ever gotten a birthday present that was wrapped in a paper garbage bag? That kind of brown paper? You didn't give it back because you didn't love the paper. You didn't say, give me something that isn't as good, but put it in nicer paper. Did you? No, we have to understand that all that we have is the provision of the Lord. We don't need to wait for extraordinary provision. If we have the breath to get up in the morning, if we are able to work to provide for ourselves, that is the provision of the Lord. If we have health, it comes from the Lord. If we have our wits about us and our intelligence, that comes from the Lord. Everything that we use each and every day and take for granted is the gift of God. So I ask you today, are you thankful for God's ordinary provisions in your life? Because they are no less the provision of God than manna in the desert. The fourth and final thing that we see of what it means to belong to the Lord is to know that He is the Lord. That He is sovereign. The next thing that we see is that Joshua meets a man in verse 13. He looks like a warrior and he is perfectly in place. He stands with a drawn sword ready to do battle. And Joshua asks what we might think is the obvious question. Are you for us or are you against us? But there's a very unexpected reply, isn't there? No. Neither. What? Who is this man? We see from later on in the text that Joshua worships him. And so if he is the angel of the Lord who is worshipped, who does not tell Joshua to get up because I am a created being, this must indeed be the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord. Just as we saw in Genesis chapter 18 with Abraham at Mamre. Just as Jacob saw in Genesis chapter 32. This is the Lord himself, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Now, if this is the Lord, then why would he not reply, I am for you and I'm for Israel. After all, the Lord has led Israel here. Why does he not say he is for Joshua and Israel? Because after all, there is a sense in which he was. That he would fight for Israel. We're going to see that in the next chapter. That the Lord fights for Israel. But there's an important point here not to be missed. He is the commander of the Lord's army. Joshua cannot claim his allegiance in Joshua's cause. The two of them would fight together, but Joshua will be following him, not the other way around. This is important for us. Because too often, we want to get God on our side. So that we can get what we want. We assume we are in the right, And we pray that God would be with us and be on our side and give us the victory. When the reality is is that God is not to be used in this way. 
He is the one who is in control. We are on His side because He is the Lord. We are not. We also see that not only is the Lord sovereign, He is holy. And Joshua understands this. He immediately falls down and begins to worship. This is a sign that it is the Son of God Himself. And Joshua immediately understands the proper lines of authority. Do you see what he says? What does my Lord say to His servant? I serve you, Lord. What do you want me to do? I won't ask any longer how you're going to help me. How can I serve you? And this reminds us that we serve God because of who He is. He is the one who is holy and right and true. To belong to the Lord places requirements on us. We must believe in Him. Believe who He is. We must trust His promises and know that they are true. We must receive His provision because we need the Lord. And we must know that He is our sovereign God and King. We belong to Him. And there is no better person that we could serve than our great God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this reminder that You are sovereign and that You lead Your people and that You give us great hope. Lord, help us this week to serve You, to honor You, to believe in You, to trust Your promises. Help us to be a people who are changed by the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.